Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This week's ocean advocate is Dr. Andy Nosal. Andy is a marine biologist and leading expert in the behavior and ecology of sharks. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So just to give our listeners a bit of background about how I know Andy, I was actually his intern about four years ago in 2012. Uh, I worked with him at Scripps Institution of Oceanography while he was doing his PhD research. Um, So thanks, Andy, for that opportunity. It was really great to work with you and and to learn about your research. Do you want to share a little bit about your PhD research with our listeners? Sure. So I started my PhD in 2007 at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And uh, when I arrived, I didn't know exactly what I was going to study. I knew that I liked sharks, but um, I hadn't, you know, had my heart set on that necessarily. I was still open to a lot of other ideas. But uh, within a few weeks of arriving at Scripps, I, it was brought to my attention this amazing phenomenon that occurs right off La Jolla Shores Beach, less than a mile south of Scripps. And that's in basically waist-deep water just outside the surf where every summer hundreds if not thousands of leopard sharks come together. And I had the opportunity to go snorkel with them. And, you know, you're in the water with these animals and you just mesmerize. And, you know, the first question that, that comes to mind is, well, why are they here? Why are they, uh, why are they grouping together like this? And why at that particular spot? Why not just a couple hundred feet up the beach? So, yeah, so answering that question, why, um, ended up being the the main goal of my dissertation at Scripps. So you set out, you started at Scripps, you kind of were looking for something to research, were maybe hoping it was going to be about sharks, and you you found out that there's this amazing population of sharks literally right off off the campus. And so you became interested in and why are they here and so can you tell us a bit about how the techniques that you used to figure out why they were there yeah so we had to revise our research question first I mean so, so the overarching question was why but it's really hard to get at that question so you have to ask other questions that provide clues and kind of lead you in the direction of why so for example we needed to know who exactly these sharks were demographically speaking. Were they male? Were they female? Were they mature? Were they immature? Because that would start to give you clues as to why they're there. So one of the techniques we used was just simple catch and release. We actually, um, just on a small Boston whaler boat about 17 feet long, uh, and you remember this well, we just spent many days, many hours on the water fishing for these leopard sharks. And we catch them and we measure them. We determine their sex. We put a little spaghetti tag on them, which is just a little ID tag in case somebody catches the shark in the future. That that way they can report back to us what had happened. Um, And then the shark is released. And what we found over the years is that the vast majority of these sharks are mature adults. And not only that, but more than 97% of these sharks are female. And so right away that told us, well, then they're probably not mating at this site, which was kind of the ongoing hypothesis. And I still hear people say that it's a spawning aggregation, but clearly that's not the case with a sex ratio like that. 
so the vast majority of these sharks are, are mature females. And not only that, but we also know that they're pregnant. Uh, we did um, many ultrasounds on these animals. We also brought many of them back into captivity and allowed them to give birth in captivity. And in no opportunity where we had the chance to determine pregnancy did the animal not end up being pregnant. So we were very confident that these sharks are mostly pregnant females. Uh, so then we had to figure out, well, then what are these pregnant females doing at this site? So we had to get at their movement patterns. And so what we did was we used the method called active acoustic tracking. And so what we did was for eight of these sharks, we caught them just like we did before. And we brought them next to the side of, uh, next to the side of the boat. And we tag them with a continuous acoustic transmitter. It's also called a pinger tag. So these things are these little plastic cylinders about the size of your index finger, or like a double-A battery. And basically, they emit a pinging sound underwater at a certain frequency. And these transmitters also have depth and temperature sensors on them. And that those data are kind of transmitted and they're encoded in those pings. And so basically, we tag the shark with this transmitter, we release it. And then we actively follow it. Wherever the shark goes, we go for about 48 hours without interruption. So we're listening for the tag uh, with what's called a, um, an, um, well, it's called a directional hydrophone. So it's basically an underwater microphone that listens in only one direction. And it's mounted at the bottom of this rotatable staff that's attached to the side of the boat. So basically, we can rotate the staff which is also therefore rotating the direction of the hydrophone under the water. And basically you just kind of sweep back and forth. You're trying to define the location of the strongest sound. That way you know that's the direction of the shark. And then you put the boat into gear and you proceed to follow the shark. So again, we do this for 48 hours nonstop. There's always at least two people on the boat and we just take turns. One person will track for three hours while the other person sleeps and then you switch. You just keep going back and forth. So what we found was that um, these pregnant females were spending the vast majority of their time in very shallow water, typically within the top two meters or about six feet of the water column. And not only were they very shallow, but they were really, really close to shore, often at and sometimes even inside the surf zone. So now we kind of know what these pregnant females are doing. And so now the question is, well, why are they so shallow and so close to shore? Now, at first we thought maybe this was a way of reducing predation risk, right? You figure if you're hugging the coastline, you've now eliminated one direction from which you can be attacked, that being from shore. Um, but it turns out that their main predator at this site doesn't really care that they're shallow and close to shore, and that's the male California sea lion. Um, we've actually observed these sea lions um, charging leopard sharks up against the beach with such force that they actually beach themselves while grabbing the shark, and then they pull themselves back into the water. So, so it doesn't seem like they're really reducing predation risk with that behavior. Instead, what we think is going on is that these pregnant females are actually accessing the warmest available water, which at this site is going to be near the surface simply because the sun is beating down, warming the water from the top down, but also very close to shore because of that prevailing onshore breeze we have in California that's constantly blowing the warmest surface water shoreward and kind of piling it up near the surf. And that's exactly where these pregnant females are hanging out. So what we think is going on is that these pregnant females are actually incubating their developing embryos. Uh, as, a, as a means of accelerating gestation, almost like mother birds sitting on their eggs to keep them warm. So, you know, we know physiologically things speed up when temperature goes up. 
And leopard sharks, like most sharks, are exothermic, meaning their body temperature is the same as the surrounding water temperature. So if they're hanging out in the warmest available water, then their body temperature is as warm as it possibly can be. And therefore, things like cell division, growth, those pups are going to be developing a lot faster than they would elsewhere along the coastline. So you figured out this amazing story of these leopard sharks. You went through all these different questions, put together all these different pieces, and you really did figure out, you know, why these pregnant female leopard sharks are hanging out in this one small area in La Jolla. Yeah. And and you spent you spent a lot of time, you know, sleeping on a small boat and catching these leopard sharks and performing ultrasounds and analyzing stomach contents and and all this. So my question is putting all that hard hard work and time into this question, why, why do you feel it was important, uh, not just for you and, and for other scientists, but for the world to know why these leopard sharks are there and why they come there and to just know more about these leopard sharks in general? There's a lot of reasons that I was really happy to do this study. I mean, first of all, you know, as scientists, we like to find intellectually challenging questions to ask. And when I came to Scripps, I found out about this phenomenon and I asked the question why and nobody could answer the question. And so it just it, it turned out to be the, the perfect topic for a dissertation. And, yeah, it took you know over five years to figure that out. But it was very rewarding because I set out to answer this question and I actually got an answer, which was great. But there were also some other uh, implications that came from these results. The fact that we know that these sharks are all pregnant females and that they aggregate, they, they, they hang out in such high densities at this one particular spot in a very urbanized area. I mean, it really brought to light how vulnerable these animals would be to being overfished. And that is if they weren't so lucky to be protected by a no-take marine reserve. So they are actually protected by a no-take marine reserve, a marine protected area. Um, but I say lucky because when that reserve went into effect in the 1970s, it was not with the purpose to protect leopard sharks. It was to protect abalone in the walls of a submarine canyon that exists right offshore. So the sharks just kind of caught a lucky break. But I mean, you if you ever see these sharks from the air, from a helicopter or from using a drone or just being in the water with them, you see how many sharks there are, and now that we know that they're all pregnant females, I, I see them not just as sharks, but as moms. And I know how easy it is to catch these sharks just using hook and line. I can't even, well, I can't imagine how easy it would be to catch them with gill nets or big seine nets. You could wipe out the whole group in an afternoon during the summer. Uh, and you wouldn't be just wiping out that generation. You're going to be wiping out future generations, again, keeping in mind that these are pregnant females. So so one of the most important things to come from this work was showing how important these aggregation sites are. And one thing I didn't mention before was that these sharks are coming back year after year. We track these sharks. So, I mean, we, we do the 48-hour track where we actually follow the shark, but we also track them using other methods for many years. And what we were finding is that they were coming back to the same site year after year. So it just makes you wonder, you know, what if, what if these sharks were not protected? And indeed, there are other aggregation sites throughout California and also in Mexico that don't have um, the same kinds of protection. And so what I'm hoping is that by showing how important these sites are and how vulnerable these sharks are, if they're not protected, I'm hoping that, you know, could be the impetus for 
establishing other marine protected areas where these animals hang out like this. That's a really, really great goal and a really great answer to that question. And that kind of brings me into another topic that I wanted to bring up, kind of about shark vulnerability at this time, both with the leopard shark, like you mentioned, how there are other aggregation sites that these leopard sharks have that are not protected, like the ones in La Jolla, but in in regards to other shark species as well, you know, in our local waters here in San Diego, but also globally, there are many other species of sharks that also aggregate, um, whether it's when they're mating or like the leopard shark when they're pregnant. Can you kind of speak on the vulnerability of sharks and the fact that they have few pups and how vulnerable they really are to overfishing and, and things like that? So in terms of their behavior, many sharks exhibit this sort of aggregation behavior or schooling, just times where there's a lot of sharks, they're all together in one spot. And so like any animal that has that kind of group behavior, they become vulnerable to being captured in mass. So, so those kinds of behaviors, that's one reason why sharks are potentially vulnerable to, to overexploitation. But also just their life history characteristics, just basic aspects of their biology contribute to that vulnerability. So most sharks are very slow growing. They don't reach maturity until late in life. They have relatively few offspring and they're long lived. So all of these factors, which we call case-selected life history characteristics, um, it just means that if a shark population declines because of human activity, and then let's say you know, at some point we do enact some sort of protective measure, maybe a ban on fishing or a marine protected area, something like that, it's going to take these sharks a long time to recover. Again, just because they're slow growing, they're late to mature, and they have few offspring. So the point is that we want to try to avoid having population declines in the first place. That kind of brings me into another topic that I'd like to bring up, sharks' reputations in the world. You have spent a lot of time swimming with these leopard sharks, snorkeling and diving with these leopard sharks and other species of sharks as well. Can you touch a bit on how oftentimes the public's perception of sharks is a bit skewed or largely <laughs> skewed? Yeah, well... You know, it's good that you bring that up because, you know, we were just talking about threats and vulnerabilities that, that sharks have. And unfortunately, negative public perception might be the biggest threat of all because if people were more willing to conserve sharks as they are willing to conserve marine mammals like dolphins and whales or even sea turtles, some of the more, you know, what people might think of as friendly ocean animals, if people were more willing to conserve sharks, then we probably wouldn't be talking about this because we would have federal laws protecting sharks, we'd have better management, but unfortunately because people are afraid of sharks, many people that is, they're not necessarily willing to have more sharks in the water than there are now, even though historically there are far fewer sharks in the water today than there were, say, several decades ago. So I think a lot of the, the negative public perception, it comes from a number of sources, um, one, obviously, is sensationalized media coverage of, of shark bites on people, overuse of the word attack, which is actually a very loaded word, and a lot of other people that study sharks agree that maybe that's not the most appropriate word to describe, you know, these sorts of shark-human interactions, which is why we're kind of, you know, we try to just say a shark bite, which is what it is. 
So sensationalized media attention to these sorts of incidents. Obviously, movies like Jaws don't really do sharks a whole lot of good. Unfortunately, when Jaws came out uh, in 1975, that was, you know, that was kind of a game changer, unfortunately, for sharks. Um, I think that they've made a lot of quite a comeback in recent years, but a lot of people are still afraid of sharks. One thing that I'm, I, I would wish people would stop saying is the phrase shark infested waters. You know, we hear this all the time. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you read a, an article where they say something about shark infested waters, but other than that, there's, there's no mention of people actually uh, encountering sharks. They just sort of add that in there to, to add some flavor to their, to their article. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it, because what makes any area infested with sharks? I mean, they live there. You can't infest your own home. If they're infested with sharks and they're infested with dolphins and sea turtles and, you know, other cute things that people like. So um, it's a lot of things that are contributing to the negative perception of shark. One other thing that we are actually testing scientifically, which is kind of cool, is uh, the background music that often accompanies shark footage in documentaries about the ocean or about sharks specifically. A lot of times the background music with shark footage is very ominous. It's kind of scary sounding, almost reminiscent of Jaws. You compare that to the background music that usually accompanies dolphin footage, which is typically beautiful and uplifting. And so what we've done is we've actually teamed up with researchers at the Rady School of Management at UCSD to kind of look at the psychology behind background music and shark documentaries. So we actually conducted thousands of surveys where people... Everybody watched the same one-minute video clip of sharks swimming. You know, nothing scary, just swimming, not eating or doing anything, just swimming, except they were randomly assigned to different background music. So some people saw the same video clip with, you know, your typical ominous shark music. Others saw it, the same clip with sort of your uplifting dolphin music. And some people saw it with just silence in the background. That was kind of our control. And then after being randomly assigned to one of those conditions, we asked them questions. For example, we asked them, how well do each of the following words describe sharks? And so we had a few positive words like beautiful and graceful and peaceful. And we had a few negative words like vicious, dangerous and scary. And those words appeared in a random order. And there was a scale from one to seven, with seven being that the word really describes sharks well and a one meaning that doesn't describe them at all. And what we found was there was a significant effect where people were rating the sharks higher for the negative words and lower for the positive words when there was ominous background music. And the reverse was seen when there was uplifting background music. So we've shown scientifically that there is an effect of background music. And so what I'm hoping to, to do is that we can get this published in the next few months, hopefully in time for Shark Week this summer, and um, just raise some awareness. I mean, I want people to, to, to realize the effect that background music has on them and maybe for filmmakers to think twice. You know, maybe having the scary background music for sharks is kind of cliche. It's not really creative anymore. I think people are smart enough to appreciate the beauty of sharks and have sharks appear with, you know, what I think is much more fitting, uplifting music. And so I want to ask you how you perceive science communication and the importance of it. Um, you, you just talked a bit about getting your research published. 
but you know, not just getting your research published, but getting it out before Shark Week. And and uh, I know you've done a lot of work with Birch Aquarium because I've I've worked with you there. Um, and so yeah, can you just touch a bit on the importance of science communication? What you do to communicate your science beyond just publishing in a scientific journal? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a firm believer that doing science is kind of pointless unless you can communicate it to every audience, not just other experts in your field, but to non-experts. Unfortunately, well, this is changing, but I would say historically, there hasn't been a lot of emphasis on science communication, that is, making scientists really effective communicators. It's, it's a real challenge for many scientists to, one, connect with their audience, and two, to distill out their message. There's usually so many other details that don't really help and just kind of bog the audience down. So, so whenever I publish something, you know, I always try to, well, yeah, so you want to publish it in a scientific journal that's peer reviewed. That's, that's an important part of science, but you also want to interpret and translate that paper into ways that every other audience can understand. Uh, so I, I go out of my way to do media interviews. I do outreach work with, for, as you mentioned, as with, with the Birch Aquarium, uh, working with their education staff, giving tours to, to school groups. I think that being able to communicate science is um, a universal skill. And I, I think that a time is coming where we might actually see part of, like, you know, for people that are going to grad school or even undergrads that are majoring in some sort of science, to have it be a requirement to take a communication class, because it's not just scientists like me who need to communicate to different audience. Think about, you know, somebody who's pre-med who wants to become a doctor. Well, you, you need to be able to communicate potentially complicated medical conditions to your patients who are not likely scientists. Um, if you're an engineer, you need to not just be able to communicate with un other engineers, but maybe other people in, in industry. Maybe you're going to pitch an idea and you want something for business purposes. So I think it's important that all scientists are able to communicate to different audiences. And so where did you get your communication skills? Because obviously you're having a great conversation right now. I've seen you speak numerous times at, at Scripps and at Birch Aquarium. Where did you kind of harness your communication skills and, and get that, that passion for communicating your science beyond uh, just the journal articles? So, you know, it's hard to know when exactly it started, but I was pretty lucky in my high school. They actually offered a public speaking class, and I took that because I thought it was just it would be a great skill to have. So that was maybe the start of it. Uh, but then, you know, whenever I had opportunities to give presentations, whether it was in high school or college, I always took those opportunities because, again, I just I thought it was going to be useful. And I mean, it turned out to really be the case. When I came to Scripps and I started doing research on the leopard sharks, because there was so much local interest in the sharks, it attracted a lot of local media attention, which is kind of how I got started working with different media groups. So they would contact me for, you know, for short interviews. A lot of times they were on camera. Sometimes they were live. And so, you know, that was kind of scary at first, but I just became really used to that and used to talking in sound bites and having control over what I was saying and what information I was trying to convey. So, so that was important to me. Most recently, there was a, a great competition, actually, a science communication competition 
through this um, organization called iBiology. And I was one of the winners. I gave a talk on my leopard shark research. It was one of five winners from around the world. And the prize was actually um, an all-expense-paid trip to Stony Brook University to the Alan Alda Center for uh, Communicating Science, where we attended workshops that basically taught us how to communicate science uh, in an effective way. And it was really interesting. They used kind of the, the underlying theme was using methods from improvisational theater to, to allow you, again, to, to connect with the audience, to distill your message, to kind of loosen up. And it was great. So we did these workshops. We did coaching, breakout sessions to improve the, you know, the, the talks that we gave as part of the application. And then at the very end, we recorded those talks uh, in front of a green screen in a, in, a, in a television studio with our slides basically projected behind us on the green screen. And those are now all published online. So, again, to answer your question, I would say it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly when I became interested in science communication. But whenever I had an opportunity to do something like that, I took it. And so I think just over time, I've had a lot of practice and a lot of opportunities to fine tune those skills. And you've had practice and opportunities, but you've also had a lot of success, you know, with your science communication, your ability to communicate your science to a larger general audience has helped you immensely, you know, whether it was get some funding from various groups or um, get your research out there and via different channels, get you more attention on the animals that you're studying. So it's really great to hear that you participated in that seminar on, on science communication and, and congratulations on getting selected to be a part of that. Thank you. So I wanted to touch a bit on your most recent publication and findings about uh, leopard sharks. And this was in the news a lot. I saw several different uh, news articles and people posting about it online. Do you want to talk a bit about your most recent research as a postdoc at Scripps? Yeah, so I we, we just published a paper that was based on several years of, of work. Um, it's just published in the journal Plus One earlier this month. Just to give you a little bit of background, so so with the leopard shark work that I did, you know, we know that leopard sharks come to La Jolla every summer, but based on our tracking, we know that they leave La Jolla in the winter, and we didn't exactly know where they were going. In fact, we still don't know exactly where they go, but we knew at least a couple of these went to Catalina Island, which is about 30 or so kilometers from the nearest point on the mainland, which is kind of, which is uh, in LA County. And those same sharks eventually came back to La Jolla the following year. And so what was interesting about that was that we don't typically think of leopard sharks as being pelagic or open ocean species. We think of them as being these nearshore benthic, which means bottom dwelling sharks. But when you realize that to go between the mainland and Catalina Island, they're not likely going along the bottom because we're talking 800 meters deep, the channel that separates the island from the mainland. So they were probably going somewhere in the middle of the water column, and therefore they were much like pelagic sharks. They were swimming amongst the likes of mako sharks and blue sharks, and they had to be in that environment for at least 30 or so kilometers, again, which is the minimum distance between the island and the mainland. So this started to raise questions about, well, how exactly do they know where they're going? What environmental cues do they use to navigate? And then that got me thinking about, well, how do sharks in general navigate? 
We know that sharks are capable of long-distance migrations. A lot of times they swim along very straight lines. They, they obviously know where they're going. But really, we don't have a good understanding of how sharks navigate. And so I wanted to test one of the many hypotheses um, using leopard sharks as a kind of model system. So one of the hypotheses that we had and the one that we ended up testing was that sharks are using smell as a means of navigation. And there was definitely precedent for this. We didn't just take that out of the blue. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, salmon use smell to find their natal streams. There's good evidence that birds use smell and insects use smell. Um, so other animals certainly do it. And we know that the shark's olfactory bulb, which is the part of the brain that processes these sort of chemical cues, uh, it doesn't scale proportionally with body size. So, you know, a shark species that is larger than another shark species doesn't necessarily have a larger olfactory bulb. Instead, the olfactory bulb seems to scale with navigational demands. So species that are more coastal pelagic, these species that have these long migrations, they tend to have larger olfactory bulbs. So that would suggest that maybe that smell is important for navigation. So to test this, we, we caught a bunch of leopard sharks from that same site in La Jolla that we've been studying for years. And we took them one at a time, about 10 kilometers offshore to the middle of the open ocean. It was 500 meters deep. We put a transmitter on them and we dropped them off and we tracked them to see how well they found their way back to shore. And if you don't mess with them, that is, you bring them out there under normal conditions, they can smell just fine, then they, they swim back towards shore along very straight paths. But if you take away their sense of smell, and we did this by plugging their nose with pieces of cotton ball soaked in petroleum jelly like Vaseline, if you do that, then they don't really find their way as well. They swim much more windy paths, and um, they actually approximate what's called a, a correlated random walk, which is just sort of like random swimming. Um, it, it's basically what animals do uh, if they don't have a distant goal in mind that they're trying to reach. So this was really neat. So we did. So we had 15 of the control sharks, the ones that could smell fine. We had 11 anosmic sharks, meaning the ones that couldn't smell because their noses were plugged, and we found these significant differences. And so the, the conclusion here, we have to be somewhat conservative in saying just olfaction, that is their sense of smell, contributes to shark navigation. We don't know the exact mechanism underlying navigation. We don't know exactly whether they're following gradients or, or, or what it is. But it does seem that, indeed, smell does play a role, and probably along with other senses as well. So this was just the first step, and it was a great first step. And we're hoping that future work, either conducted by us or, or other researchers around the world, uh, might be able to find out even more exactly how they're using smell. Do you think that finding out that smell is contributing to their sense of direction and all these other things that you've been able to find out about leopard sharks, do you think that this is really contributing to not only our knowledge base about these sharks, but potentially changing people's perception of sharks? You know, we've seen with many other species of animals, such as whales and uh, other species of animals, that when we learn more about them, people are more compassionate about them. So do you feel like that's kind of an underlying current of what you do as well? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, one of my favorite conservation quotes comes from Baba Diem, and he said, you know, in the end, we will conserve only what we love, we'll love only what we understand, and we'll understand only what we're taught. So I think that, to a large extent, people's fear of sharks, just the negative perception, is is due to a lack of understanding, this sort of, this this huge mystery about sharks. And I think the more that we learn about them, and the more that people get to know sharks, whether they're, you know, harmless leopard sharks or any other species, um, the better, the better for sharks. So I think people will uh, learn to appreciate them more, even if they have a healthy fear of, of these animals, which is not a horrible thing. I mean, we do want to respect them. And if, if somebody's seeing a big shark in the water, you know, you may not want to get in the water, you know, you might not want to get in right at that second. But I think there's a balance to be made. I think that we can have a healthy fear, or maybe a better word is respect for these animals, but also appreciate them and know why it's important to have them in the water. And not only to kind of change people's perceptions, but all of this knowledge that you've been able to gather, like we talked about a bit earlier, is potential to protect them better. You know, if we know their migration channels and how they're migrating and the mechanisms that they're using and and many other things that you found out about these leopard sharks, it's all the better to understand how to protect them. Right. You never, you never know in the future what, what kind of things can come from your research now. I mean, a lot of times it's hard to justify and explain why conducting basic research is important. That is research that doesn't have like a tangible applied meaning, you know, something that's not used for medicine, for example, to, to cure a disease. You know, why, why just basic research is important? And because you never know what will, what will come of it later down the line. Yes, it's great now because we're, we're answering uh, important scientific questions, but Right. You're, you're absolutely right that down the line, they may very well have applied meanings as well. And I think that that's, you know, what you just said is, is really an inspiration to anyone that's, you know, an up and coming scientist or a future scientist, because I'm sure you have done this throughout your entire career. You stand on the shoulders of giants. The basic research that someone might have done 50 years ago was really meaningful and useful to you in order to do your research. So someone coming up behind you, I'm sure, will find your research very useful and important as well. I hope so. And what I would say for you know anybody who might be considering a career like this, um, I mean, one of the most rewarding, amazing things about doing original research, I mean, it, it's the whole process. It's coming up with a question that you find interesting, that you're personally invested in, then trying to figure out how you're going to go about answering it, then raising the money to do it, then actually doing it. And then there's that time, that, that moment where the data are just starting to come in. And for those moments, you're the only one in the world that knows the answer to that question. Obviously, eventually you're going to publish it and share those data, but it's, it's pretty special when you're the only one in the world that, that knows the answer to that question. And that's one of the things that really drives me uh, as a researcher, and it's that kind of excitement that I want to share with other people that might be inspired to to pursue that kind of career as well. I love that uh, you hold on to that that excitement. Um, mm. That's really great. So your postdoc research um, on these leopard sharks will be ending somewhat soon during this year of 2016. So 
Do you mind telling us what you have planned for the future? Will you be continuing to study these leopard sharks or are you moving on to something else? So in terms of research, I probably will continue to study leopard sharks to some extent. I mean, they've they've proven to be a great model to study many different things um, about sharks. Either they're easy to capture, they're locally abundant, they're hardy in captivity. You can you can do quite a lot of things to them, and they they get on just fine. So, in other words, they they put up with a lot, and so they're mm-hmm. they're they're great research subjects. Um, but that said, there are a lot of other local species that I'm really interested in. So the place where the leopard sharks hang out every year in La Jolla, there are actually a lot of other sharks and rays around as well. And so we're actually in the process now of tagging and tracking other species. So other ones we're looking at are soup fin sharks, seven gill sharks, the California bat ray, and the shovel nose guitar fish. So these are four species that are locally abundant. They seem to be seasonally abundant in a kind of a similar way that we saw with the leopard sharks, um, but we don't know a whole lot about how they use the habitat in this area and over what time scales. So we're just starting to scratch the surface there. It's been actually kind of a slow start the last couple of years because the water has been uh, exceptionally warm this past summer and the summer before that. And you know, this year it seems that it's due to El Nino. But a lot of the animals that we typically catch and the ones that we were trying to catch the last couple of years, um, they haven't been around. And I think that might be because the water's been so warm. Instead, we've been seeing unusual species like whale sharks and hammerheads and sea snakes, you know, washing ashore in Southern California. So it's been kind of a weird, uh, weird couple of years. But I'm hoping, uh, hoping this, this coming year uh, the water temperature returns to normal and we can finish tagging the animals that we want. Great. Well, I definitely wish you all the best of luck continuing to study these leopard sharks and also all those other amazing species that you just mentioned. Um, I think that any information that you um, can find out about these shark and ray species is going to be very valuable to the scientific community as well as the public. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, um, I want to thank you for being on the show. I Hope you enjoyed our conversation. I definitely did, and I think that our listeners will definitely be inspired by your work and your dedication to the ocean. That's great, Allison. Thank you very much for inviting me. You just heard Dr. Andy Nosal, marine biologist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, working to better understand sharks and how people perceive them. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at allisonrandolph.com. And tune in to next week's episode of Ocean Allison to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.